Hi, and welcome to The Missing Middle. I'm Kara Stern. And I'm Mike Moffat. And we're really thrilled to welcome back Armin Yelnesian. She's the Atkinson Fellow on the Future of Workers, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's so much fun being with you guys. At the end of January, the Bank of Canada announced it would hold interest rates for another quarter. The governor of the bank, Tiff Macklems, later gave a speech where he said, housing affordability is a significant problem in Canada, but not one that can be fixed by raising or lowering interest rates. So, Armin, what did you think when you heard of that? I thought, pass me the screaming pillow, darling. <laughs> Why? Tell us more. Oh, I mean, like the number one driver of uh, inflation in the CPI basket is mortgage costs. Guess what happens when you raise the policy rate? It immediately goes through to the banks and the banks raise their lending rates. Uh, and we saw the policy rate go up um, at the fastest rate it has ever gone up in history from 0.25% to 5% in a matter of 16, 17 months. Uh, nobody's ever seen anything like that. So we're, we've still got roughly half the mortgages that are out there, about 6 million mortgages, roughly half of them still need to be refinanced. And monthly carrying costs have gone up by hundreds of dollars, if not over $1,000, sometimes over $2,000, depending on the property and the leverage. Uh, so nobody's incomes or very few people's incomes have gone up that much. And that cascades into rents because a lot of Canadians as well as foreign investors invested in real estate as an asset looking for a steady return of income. And so that takes a while for it to cascade into rents. But sure enough, rents have been going up faster than they have since the 1970s. And to say that interest rates have got nothing to do with this, well, he didn't actually say they have nothing to do with this. He said it, it is not the primary reason. And there the jury is out because it is both a supply and a demand issue. He skated around what their role is in a way that makes it sound like he's saying it's immaterial. He isn't saying that. He needs a better comms team. Mike, I don't understand why he would say that when you know that he understands a relationship between interest rates and mortgage costs. So like, what do you think he was actually trying to get at with that? Yeah, I think it was unfortunately phrased. Uh, I, I don't think he should have said that. I think what he was trying to say is uh, look at the sort of structural issues of, of the housing market. <laughs> and I, I, we can get an example of that. So the CMHC report, and we just had an episode on that recently, had this like really fantastic chart about uh, housing affordability for condos in uh, in the Toronto area. And if you go from like 2000 to 2015, um, the sort of the, the the cost that people paid for a condo, the monthly cost, including you know uh, fees and energy and all of that, was about 25 percent of income. And it was pretty constant between 2000 and 2015, despite the fact interest rates went up, interest rates went down. And so and so on that that monthly cost was relatively constant. And then it went up 
after that, and it basically went up after that because we started to have a supply demand uh, imbalance that we had some structural issues causing uh, supply not to be able to go up as fast as it needed to and demand driven by population growth. So I think that's what he was trying to say that that our housing issues sort of predate some of these interest rate decisions and that we have all these kind of structural factors involved. But yeah, uh, that was a very unfortunate way to phrase that. And he has to also understand that, you know, given some of the comments he made during the pandemic about interest rates not going up and, you know, some of the other comments he's made about wages and inflation, the people are not ready to give him the benefit of the doubt right now. So he should be particularly careful on how he frames things. And yeah, I I don't know if I screamed in my pillow. Mine was just kind of more like hand down like, oh. God, what is he doing <laughs> face now? Palm. But but it was a you know, more of a face palm, but it was a very similar reaction. I mean, does the bank acknowledge that having low interest rates for twenty years fueled the housing market that we're dealing with right now? I I can't answer that because I haven't heard everything that they have said in the last twenty years. But clearly, part of the supply demand mismatch that Mike just identified is a function of the lowest interest rates in history. You'd have to go back thousands of years to see interest rates where money was essentially free to borrow. So anybody that had any equity could leverage more money, more equity. And that's exactly what people did around the world and here in Canada, which created this mismatch between supply and demand, turned housing from a thing you need to consume to keep yourself out of the cold in Canada to an asset that is an, uh, a dividend-bearing, an income-bearing asset, where at historically low interest rates that were driven by central banks around the world in the wake of the global financial crisis. So this has happened in major cities around the world, wherever we had a central bank that dropped rates to deal with a liquidity, a global liquidity crisis. And couldn't bring them back up again because of household indebtedness. And household indebtedness was where it was at around the world, but particularly in Canada, because of stagnant wages and incomes. Notwithstanding the fact that more people per household were working over the last 30 years, household income did not rise significantly, but housing prices have taken off since the 90s. And so housing is eating up a bigger and bigger share of what was until fairly recently in a pretty flat income growth in it by household. Uh, so, you know, this is, this goes back to prosperity and how do people get ahead if they can't save enough to buy something because they're not earning enough. And also because uh, they're not getting better jobs. The jobs are not paying more. That has changed in the last 11 months. And that is specifically something that Tiff Macklin says, don't let that happen because that might bake in inflation. Well, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. It's a good thing he's not elected because he would be unelected. Yeah, and I think it's important when we talk about the sort of secular decline of interest rates over the last, say, 30 years, that that isn't entirely a central bank thing, that there have been a lot of global factors to cause that. Because we have to we have to look at the counterfactual. Like, let's say 1996 and, you know, God forbid, Ron Paul had been elected president of the United States and said, you know what, we aren't going to control the federal fund we're we're going to make it so that the federal funds rate or here in Canada the overnight rate is is not um 
controlled by the central bank. We're just going to let it float and let the market do, do what it want, wanted. We still would have had a massive drop in global interest rates, right? Because we had a massive savings glut from China. We had a massive savings glut of, you know, the boomers buying bonds, insurance companies, um, you know, buying fixed asset prices. So we had all these people who wanted to save and nobody was really borrowing. Governments weren't really borrowing because, as we know, you know, we had uh, uh, governments trying to, to balance the books in both Canada and the United States. Uh, manufacturers weren't borrowing anymore because, you know, we were we were going the opposite direction of manufacturing. You know, we were shuttering plants and they were all moving overseas. Right. So we would have had a massive secular decline in interest rates anyway. Now. To change the counterfactual, you know, the central bank could have always done something about it. It could have kind of raised interest rates up and not allow them to fall. But we would have found ourselves in an even worse spot, right, that we would have seen, you know, even less investment in, in factories and machinery. We would, would have seen even higher Canadian dollar, U.S. dollar and had more jobs going to China. So, you know, we have to understand we're kind of damned if we do, damned if we don't. That, yeah, absolutely. We had this, um, you know. 2000 year low in interest rate but we also had you know uh the emergence of not just china but the uh the asian tigers something you know an economic phenomenon that we arguably hadn't seen since the industrial revolution and we also had uh that the the big baby boomer uh bubble demographic right and we've never seen a big cohort of uh of individuals like that so we had some really unusual dynamics in the 90s and 2000s that led to these global interest rate but it absolutely had all of these knockdown knockdown effects uh, what do you mean uh, the asian tiger in, what does that mean so the asian tigers are uh south korea and thailand um basically a bunch of uh countries in the 80s 90s and, and 2000s who really you know, became globalized, uh, became, uh, you know, sort of first world manufacturing powerhouses, uh, which, uh, you know, helped basically drive down the costs of goods. Uh, it was, you know, we saw these manufacturing powers emerge and, you know, the price of a T-shirt went down in both nominal and real terms as as these countries got very good at producing things, which led to this kind of secular global decline in, in interest rates. I thought about people probably uh, were okay a little bit with the stagnant wages for a while when the cost of everything started going down so massively. And I wonder what role that played in getting to where we are today, where it's just like things aren't really going down in prices the same way they were before and people's wages aren't going up. So they just can't afford housing. Do you like what do you think that played a big role at all? Well, I, I think what we I think what we saw was that as again the the, the price of of t shirts and all everything went went down and incomes did go up for people in in the nineties and and two thousands. Now there's distributional things that basically that combination of increased savings and low interest rates caused people to flood into the housing market and use housing as an investment, just just like Armin said. So, you know, you know, kind of ironically that it was actually our prosperity that that led to to part of the housing bubble, which was great for, uh, you know, guys like me who were born in the 1970s who could, you know, buy a home in London, Ontario for $170,000 and, you know, watch it go up. But it's been really challenging for the generation after me who, you know, 
saw basically all the Gen Xers and boomers buy up all the housing. And, you know, you guys are, are scrambling for the rest. Yeah, I felt like I really missed out. I spent too much time in kindergarten rather than buying homes. It really messed that up. <laughs> it was um, just, it was irresponsible of you to be born 10 years too late. I mean, that. do you think that we're seeing that full force of that rate rise you talked about now, or is there still going to be more to come? Oh, definitely there's more to come because about half of the mortgages that are out there, outstanding mortgages, about 6 million of them, about half of them still need to be refinanced in 2024 and 2025. So the other shoe's going to fall. Yeah. And it takes a while for that to translate from um, mortgage holders to uh, renters because not all mortgage holders uh, own a second or third property. Um, but it will arrive in rental markets. And uh, we haven't seen rents increase year over year this quickly since the 1970s. So more is to come there too. And to your point about nobody wanting to see higher prices, there being actually um, a lot of sympathy in some some parts of the conversation for Tiff Macklin saying don't raise wages or else you're going to bake in inflation. If that's the case and we don't see continued rises in, in, in wage rates and employment rates of people in the bottom half of the distribution, then housing is going to chew up more and more of people's incomes. And that is going to slow down the uh, economy because there's just less money to go around for the non-essentials. Um, to Mike's point about what happened in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, somewhere around the middle of the uh, teen years, uh, 2010s, we started seeing an accelerated wage gain for those at the bottom. That's because minimum wages started to be increased in virtually every province across the country because of the importing of a fight from the U.S., the fight for 15. And, we, and that mobilizing moment actually spilled over into Canada, was captured, and uh, we saw major gains there. And there's a kind of trickle up or, um, you know, a push up, a boost up from the bottom up of the economy when that happens. Uh, it, it doesn't really affect the middle that much, but it affects the next to the minimum wage. And that does increase, of course, purchasing power of the people that spend every single dollar they make. So that does boost uh, expenditures, purchasing power. And we have seen that in the share of the economy that is propelled by household spending. So we've gone from about 53, 54% of GDP to 55, 56, 57, depends on the quarter you're looking at. But that's not immaterial. We're over $2 trillion of GDP. So that kind of an increase is a lot more spending power. And a lot of it is coming from people at the bottom. Another part of it is coming from man the management class, because the management class is retiring. They are the boomers, and they are asking for more to stay. And then people that were in lower levels of management that are being promoted as these people leave are also making more money. So the management class, in terms of wage growth, you first of all saw it in the bottom in agriculture, in retail, in hospitality, as the pandemic reopened, and then you saw it in management, and now it's going back to the bottom of the uh, of the income spectrum and occupational spectrum again in terms of wage growth. That's something to keep your eye on. Whose wages are growing? Whose income is going up? Yeah, we're talking about wage growth that exceeds uh, inflation rates and has for eleven months. Is that a bad thing? Is that a leading indicator of 
more inflation to come or a lagging indicator of people catching up? Because just as there are mortgages to be refinanced, there are also collective bargaining agreements that are coming up. The fascinating thing is it's not unions that are driving this wage growth. It's the non-union part of the economy that has been driving most of the wage growth. So keeping your eye on not only wage growth generically, but whose wage growth is a really important bellwether of what's to come and the affordability of life going down the road. When you say that there are people who are seeing wage growth, but there tend to be more on the like the boomer level of, of the workforce, uh, but the people who are kind of most indebted are the ones who took on such big mortgages as they were trying to get into the property market. Um, so a lot of millennials I know are very highly indebted. They aren't seeing that kind of wage growth. Are we going to see a whole bunch of bankruptcies coming up? I don't think so. We have also increased our savings rates uh, over the pandemic. So it depends on how long this high interest rate policy maintains and what happens to wage growth for the millennials, because they are more valuable. We're moving into about a 20-year period where we're going to be looking at the smallest working age cohort we have seen in 60 years. Workers are suddenly very valuable. That's why you're seeing rhetorical flourishes like working for workers, not only in Ontario, but south of the border too. They understand that the power now, the power dynamic and bargaining power for workers is at the highest level it has been for 50, 60 years. Uh, whether they will be able to maintain that is a function of a lot of things, including, you know, one of the solutions to labor shortages in the United States is rolling back child labor laws. That's not going to strengthen workers. Uh, one of the solutions to labor shortages in Canada was pouring in temporary foreign workers and international students who are low, ex low wage, exploitable labor. That might be on the cusp of changing. So how this story of labor shortage gets addressed will be the tell on uh, how incomes keep up with costs, particularly in housing. We haven't seen the, you know, we started this off talking about the Bank of Canada governor uh, raising rates and maybe being a little bit skittish about lowering rates in the next few months. That has been something that has been deferred by the Federal Reserve in the United States. And in Canada, it's like the market was pricing in a rate cut around March. And that has clearly been deferred for a host of reasons, including the economy's too strong. <laughs> so that was kind of like, you know, good news, bad news syndrome. And you mentioned actually, Kara, that, you know, your age group, took on a lot of debt to be able to get into the housing market. Uh, but boomers kind of rode the wave of timing uh, to get in and avoid taking on those that debt. We are seeing for the first time in history, uh, people with household debt, particularly mortgages, who are, who are retired. We are seeing people that are now, they use their homes as ATMs. They use the rising value of their homes as a way to offset the fact that they weren't making enough money for their lifestyles. And so we are seeing a lot of people that are now living on fixed incomes that still are paying off mortgages and lines of credit and stuff like that. It's not a pretty picture when you get old. It's, that's very worrying. I don't know what will happen with at that. And I know a lot of them take out the money to help their kids get onto the property ladder. And right it's on. just like... It's, it's it's such a dangerous situation. There's so much more to talk about. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. That was that was fantastic. Even if we ended on a bit of a gloomy note. 
Thank you so much for watching and listening. And thanks as always to our brilliant producer, Meredith Martin. And please like, subscribe, or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next time.